Hey everybody, welcome back to another episode of On The Mix. I'm your host, Lindsay, and today this episode is totally inspired by my mom because she is a massive fan of the Carpenters and Karen Carpenter in specific. She would tell me the story of Karen Carpenter all the time growing up. I would hear the story of Karen Carpenter and how she tragically uh, lived her life and then how she passed away so young, like all the time growing up. I figured I would share the story with you guys too, because it's a really interesting, very, very sad story. You know, you have mental illness mixed with fame and people having their opinions and their opinions can strike the core of a person and it can absolutely alter someone's life forever. Without further ado, some of you probably, or probably not, know of The Carpenters. The most famous songs that they've done is Close to You. The other one that they did was Superstars. Without further ado, let's just jump on right into the story of who Karen Carpenter is and how The Carpenters came to be, and then the absolute tragedy that is Karen Carpenter's life. It's, it's sad to say that, but it's true. So Karen was born on March 2nd, 1950 in New Haven, Connecticut. Karen's older brother, Richard, had an interest in music at an early age, becoming something of a piano prodigy in his own right. So she kind of took after her older brother and started having a really deep fascination with music. The family then moved across the country in June 1963 to Los Angeles, and Karen entered Downey High School in 64. In order to avoid gym classes, which, yeah, girl, 100%, I hated gym class with every fiber of my being. I would always try to do whatever I could to skip or do the least amount of work possible. Um, so I feel her on this. So in order to avoid gym class, Karen joined her school's band team instead. And this would turn out to be one of the biggest things for her in terms of forming her own musical talents. The school's conductor, Bruce Gifford, gave her the glockenspiel, which she didn't like at all. And funny enough, one of the student drummers, his name is Frankie Chavez, Frankie actually liked Karen's performance on the glockenspiel, and they became friends, and she asked him, hey, could I play the drums instead and you can have the glockenspiel, please? Karen, for some reason, always had a fascination with drumming. She specifically wanted a Ludwig drum set because it was used by two of her favorite drummers of all time, Joe Morello and Ringo Starr. And of course, Ringo Starr, I think, is probably the most uh, widely known drummer to use Ludwig. Like, I think when you hear Ludwig drums, you think of Ringo. Makes sense. So her friend Frankie successfully persuaded Karen's family to buy her a $300 Ludwig drum kit. I don't know how he even managed to do that, but good on him. I mean, fair enough. So they bought her a drum kit and Frankie ended up teaching her how to play the drums. Her strong passion for drumming led her to eventually teaching herself how to play more complicated drum patterns. So within a year, she actually could play in very complex time signatures which is very fast. It's very unusual that someone could pick it up that quickly, but she just had a natural knack for drumming. Karen's first band was called the 2 Plus 2 Band, which was an all-girl trio formed with friends from high school. As I think bands, when you form them with your friends in high school happens, they split as soon as they start. And Karen suggested that her brother Richard ended up joining the group. And again, Richard already was a musical prodigy of his own right, especially on the piano, and he would write a lot of songs and things. So it was natural for him to come on board. 
1965, Karen, her brother Richard, and one of Richard's friends, Wes Jacobs, who was a bassist and tuba player, together they formed the Dick Carpenter Trio, because Richard, Dick, the two Carpenter siblings, and there's three of them, the Dick Carpenter Trio, haha, <laughs> it all makes sense. The band rehearsed daily, playing in jazz nightclubs, and they also appeared on the TV talent show, Your All-American College Show. So they were really going out here and doing the most. Richard was immediately impressed with Karen's musical talent, saying that she would speedily maneuver the sticks as if she had been born in a drum factory. So I told you that Karen is the singer for the Carpenters, and that's true. Um, however, she didn't start out by singing initially, so at this point she was mainly just the drummer. Um, and she did some backup vocaling, but that was mostly her role at the time was playing the drums. Instead, singer Margaret Shanner guessed on some numbers for the trio. Karen has always been a really shy person, and she initially had pretty bad stage fright, but she said that she was too involved in the music to worry about it. So that's another component too. She was just very nervous about coming on stage and performing, whether it be on drums or singing, but singing especially was something she did not want to do. Because I can feel her. It's very scary when you have like social anxiety to go up there on stage and really sing, especially if you already have insecurities about yourself, like that is the thing that you don't want to do. I fully respect her decision at this time to not sing. In mid-1966, the Dick Carpenter Trio entered the Hollywood Bowl's annual Battle of the Bands competition, and they ended up winning. Awesome job to them. And they were signed by RCA Records. So during this brief recording with RCA, they recorded such songs as The Beatles, Every Little Thing, and Frank Sinatra's Strangers in the Night. Unfortunately, their recordings were reviewed and RCA chose to not produce them in the end. So that is a big middle finger straight to RCA. Like, they win the Battle of the Bands competition, you sign them to your record label, and then you're like, nah, we're not going to have them on anymore. Like... How does that make any sense? Okay. Anyway, Karen eventually ends up graduating from high school in 1967, and she then enrolled as a music major at Long Beach State College, where she performed in the college choir with her brother, Richard. The choir director, Frank Pooler, said that Karen had a good voice that was particularly suited to pop, and he gave her lessons so she could develop her vocal range to attain three octaves. Now, I did singing in the choir back in school as well. I can understand her love of music and being in the choir. Being in school choir was really fun for me. I, it was like one of the best times that I ever had in school, to be honest. Like, I don't know, music is just so fun. But of course, you know, you have to be technically trained. You have to learn how to read sheet music and things like that. So um, now that she was in college, it was a step above. They had to really kind of stretch her vocal cords and really kind of get that range in her voice, obviously, and as healthy of a way as possible. Because once you misuse your voice one time, it can ruin it forever. So now let's move on to the formation of the Carpenters and the awesome music they played and some of the major history they made on the music scene at the time and how they differed from popular music that was coming out at the time. So I'm backing it up one year in April 66. The trio were invited to audition at a session with bassist Joe Osborne. Though Karen was initially expected to just be the drummer, Karen tried singing. She impressed everyone there with her voice, like, shocking, like, whoa. 
This came out of Karen's mouth unbelievable. So Joe signed a recording contract with her for his label Magic Lamp Records. He wasn't particularly interested in Richard's involvement in the band, weirdly enough, but he was very taken by Karen. And so right then and there, they got signed. By this time, their bassist Wes Jacobs left to study at Juilliard, and Richard and Karen were really interested in trying out other musical styles now that it was just the two of them. Together with other musicians, including Gary Sims and John Bettis, or Batiste, they formed the group called Spectrum, which focused on vocal harmonies, and they recorded many demo tapes in Joe Osborne's garage studio, trying to figure out how to overdub voices onto multi-track tapes, particularly with Karen's voice, because Richard was really trying to see what he could do technically with Karen's voice to make her stand out above the instrumentation and also to stand out alone above everything else. Um, So they were trying to play with how to do that overdubbing. Many of these tapes were rejected by a lot of mainstream record companies, unfortunately. The group had difficulty attaining a fan base because predominantly the music that was popular by the time in the mid-late 60s was like rock some psychedelic rock music. Um, Pop music was popular, but their kind of music is more easy listening, kind of folky, but very, I don't want to say theatrical, but it's just very easy listening pop, power pop, I I guess is kind of the word to use. Um, So you compare that to what was coming out at the time with like the Beatles and the Rolling Stones. Um, and Jimi Hendrix, and The Animals, you know, all the kind of rock and roll stuff, and it was then The Carpenters, and so people initially just were not interested in what The Carpenters had to share at all. Um, So they were struggling initially to attain a fan base. By this time in 1968, Spectrum had disbanded because of the fact their music was so different, and again, they had trouble attaining a fan base, and so they were like, okay, yeah, maybe we should just disband anyway. So this is where Karen and Richard decided to formally become a duo, calling themselves the Carpenters. And now this is where it's all gonna go really sky high for them. A&M Records finally signed the Carpenters to a recording contract in 1969. Label owner Herb Alpert was intrigued by Karen's voice, later saying, It touched me. I felt like it was time. On meeting the duo... Herb said, let's hope we can have some hits. And of course, that was to be foreshadowing because they were to have a lot of hit singles. Keep in mind that Karen was very young at this time. She was actually only 19 years old and she was underage, of course, to kind of go on tour and like actually sign a huge recording contract with a label and all that that entailed. So her parents had to co-sign for her on this recording contract, which is cute, but like, you know, also how embarrassing would that be? Like as a 19 year old, you think you know everything, you think like you're such an adult, then you go and you get this really high status recording contract and you're like, um, my parents have to co-sign for me almost like a field trip. Like the parents have to sign off on the field trip forms in school. Oh my God. How embarrassing, but so funny. They decided to sign as just carpenters without the definite article meaning like the carpenters because they were influenced by such names as buffalo springfield and jefferson airplane at the time which is just kind of like the main name for the band instead of being like the doors the kinks the beatles the rolling stones they were just carpenters which they thought was considered hip at the time 
Karen started out as both the group's drummer and backup singer, and she originally sang all of her vocals from behind the drum set like Ringo Starr would. She sang most of the songs on the band's first album originally called Offering, and it was later retitled Ticket to Ride, and this was released on October 9th, 1969. The track, Ticket to Ride, obviously a Beatles cover, was released as the Carpenters' first single, and it reached number 54 on the Billboard Hot 100, so first single, not too shabby. It made roughly halfway through the 100 songs of the time. Really not too bad at all. But now this is where we're going to get into their absolute major hit singles. So while the first single that they were to do, which was the cover, their debut album initially had poor sales and not a lot of great promotion for the album either. Again, they were still kind of somewhat struggling to find their place amongst everyone else in the music industry at the time. So their label decided that they should record a hit single instead of another album right out of the gate, which was typically how it was done. So that year in December, they met Bert Bacharach, who was impressed by their work and invited them to open for him at a charity concert. Burt Bacharach, I mean, to be honest, I've never listened to his music before, but I know that he was very, very popular at the time. So hey, Burt Bacharach himself was like, you guys are the bee's knees. Come open for me at a charity concert, please. I totally didn't intend for that to rhyme. So Richard was asked personally by Burt Bacharach to rework one of his songs entitled They Long to Be Close to You. The song originally was first recorded in 63 by Richard Chamberlain, and then it was redone by Dionne Warwick in 64, and then obviously Burt Bacharach did it as well. So this is not an original song by any stretch of the imagination. This is a cover upon cover upon cover. Um, But Burt Bacharach was like, hey, can you rework this song? Richard decided that the song would work really well as a standalone piece, and he wrote an arrangement from scratch like 100% from scratch. That's the thing I like about Richard. He actually is very, he's a very ingenious person. Like he on the spot just thinks of these genius concepts for songs. It just takes him no time at all. It's really, really fascinating. The Carpenters initially struggled at first trying to record this rendition. And for the second session, it was suggested that Hall Blaine play drums instead of Karen. And so therefore Karen would be then pushed to the front to sing the cover of the song. And the Carpenter's version of Close to You was released as a single in March 1970. It entered the charts at number 56, but it eventually reached number one by July, so not much long after, only a couple months, and it stayed there at number one for four weeks. Absolutely insane stuff we're talking about here. Their next hit was a song that Richard had seen in a television commercial for Cracker National Bank called We've Only Just Begun. And this song was originally written by Paul Williams and Roger Nichols. So he saw this kind of theme song, if you will, on a TV commercial and was like, whoa, that's great. That would be a great Carpenter's tune. Who thinks of that? (laughs) I think that's awesome. Three months after Close to You reached number one, the Carpenters' version of We've Only Just Begun reached number two on the Billboard Hot 100. It was stopped at getting to number one because they had to pass the popular I'll Be There by the Jackson 5 and I Think I Love You by the Partridge Family during its four weeks on the chart. I mean, that's what they had to come up against. The Jackson 5 themselves 
they could have totally surpassed the Jackson 5. The Partridge family, well, say what you will about the Partridge family. I Think I Love You, surely, was a wicked tune at the time in the 60s or 70s. It was huge. The Partridge Family is another one that I grew up on because my mom loved that show growing up as a kid. Like, <laughs> so I, I heard it all the time. The Carpenter's rendition of We've Only Just Begun became the first hit single for the original songwriters of the tomb. So that's awesome. And the original songwriters actually consider the Carpenter's version to be the definitive version, which is really nice. Like they totally was like, no, 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 we're bowing down to the Carpenters. Like what they did to the song totally blew everything out of the water. So yeah, that's the definitive version out of the two. I think that's really cool. So both of these singles, Close to You and We've Only Just Begun, became certified gold singles and were featured on their best-selling second album, Close to You, which released on August 19, 1970. The album itself placed at number 175 on Rolling Stone's 500 Greatest Albums of All Time list. So out of 500, it reached 175. Not bad at all. Not bad, considering this was in 2003, this list was made, so consider the albums that were on here at the time. So we're fully in the 70s. The Carpenters had a plethora of hit singles and albums through the early portion of the 70s. Their 1971 song, For All We Know, was recorded a year prior by the band called Bread. Bread was most known for doing the song Baby I'ma Want You, which is a good tune. Richard saw the original song's potential for The Carpenters and recorded it in the autumn of 1970. And the track became The Carpenters' third gold single and later won an Oscar for Best Original Song. On March 16, 1971, they received two Grammy Awards, winning for Best New Artist and Best Contemporary Performance by a Duo, Group, or Chorus. I mean, they're just literally coming out here with single after single after single after single. Their fourth gold single is another big tune of theirs, Rainy Days and Mondays, and this was again another song that was originally written by Paul Williams and Roger Nichols. They're like, uh, yeah, you can rework this song, you did great for our other tune, absolutely. And Richard rearranged the song to include a saxophone solo, which we all know. Saxophone solos are where it's at. It makes any song ten times better if you add a little bit of saxophone sprinkled in throughout. We all know it's true. Don't deny it. We know it's true. <laughs> the single peaked at number two on the Billboard Hot 100. So now we're getting into their next massive single, which was called Superstar. And this was originally written by Bonnie Bramlett and Leon Russell. The song originally had appeared on Joe Cocker's 70 album called Mad Dogs and Englishmen. And this is another tune that, again, Karen and Richard realized it's a potential Carpenter's single. They're like, we can rework this and make it our own, which is fascinating. And they changed the line in the song, which was originally, I can hardly wait to sleep with you again, to I can hardly wait to be with you again, particularly because they thought, well, if we leave it the original, which was, I can hardly wait to sleep with you again, that the contemporary radio stations at the time, which was very square, would not approve. So they wanted it to be played on the radio. So they wanted it to be family-friendly and radio-friendly. Superstar sold a million copies and it reached gold status and it went to number two on the Billboard Hot 100. This time, it was held off of the top spot by Rod Stewart's Maggie Mae, which is like, listen, I'm not a big Rod Stewart fan, but Maggie Mae is one of the best songs of all time. 
it's totally understandable that Maggie Mae outdid the Carpenters in this instance. Like, I totally understand. It makes sense. On May 14th, 1971, the Carpenters performed a sold-out show at Carnegie Hall, and they released their third album, Carpenters, on the same day. It became one of their best sellers, earning platinum status four times over, and it landed at number two on the Billboard's pop album chart for two weeks behind Carole King's Tapestry. I can't comment on Carole King because I don't really listen to her, to be honest, but I know that that's a massive album, so fair enough. It had over a million pre-sale orders, and the album won a Grammy, as well as if receiving three nominations for Grammy Awards. They're fully-fledged, like, 100% in the swing of the mainstream. They have landed fame and fortune, and they're just really, they're really doing it. But unfortunately, as we'll learn a little bit later, both of the Carpenter siblings were absolutely not holding up well, to be fair. By mid-71, the Carpenters were being criticized that their live shows had no focal point because all of their live shows had Karen sitting at her drum kit and singing. And her drum kit was like her security blanket. And I understand that. But at the same time, there was no one at the front of the stage with a microphone. And the audience, I think, likes to have that focal point to really feel like it's more intimate, you know? So they realized that they had to change their lineup a little bit. They had to rearrange some things. And Richard and other people in the band were really trying to get Karen to be out front and sing for everybody. But Karen didn't like this idea initially because she was most comfortable behind her drum kit. And again, I can really sympathize and understand that, especially when you have stage fright and you have that social anxiety and you're afraid and you're scared. I totally understand that. But her getting out there to the front so people can see her and she's singing directly to the crowd, it made the world difference. So now that Karen was at the front and she wasn't playing drums anymore, while they were touring, they hired Jimmy Anthony as their touring drummer. And over time, Karen became more and more relaxed as a front woman and centerpiece of the band. Later on that year in 1971, Richard was watching a Bing Crosby movie entitled Rhythm of the River. This is the one that I think is the most genius. Out of all the songs, hit singles that they've ever reworked and recorded, this is the most interesting. So Richard was watching this Bing Crosby film. In the movie, Bing Crosby played a country singer whose career was steadily on the decline. And in the movie, his most famous song was a song called Goodbye to Love. The song itself was only just mentioned in the film. You know, it wasn't actually a song that was played or for the film soundtrack, it literally was just mentioned. Like, oh yeah, I have a song called Goodbye to Love or something, you know? So as Richard was watching this film, he imagined what it might sound like. And he actually wrote down some initial lyrics for this fake song from a film. And it then became an actualized tune. Can you believe that? How ingenious is that? For the song's arrangement, Richard suggested adding a fuzz guitar solo, which, whoa, <laughs> For the Carpenters, a fuzz guitar solo, OMG, that is a massive movement right there. Um, no, that's cool. He actually was like, yeah, let's add a bit of something cool like a fuzz guitar. He initially resisted suggestions to get an experienced session guitar player to do this part, but instead he asked Tony Peluso to do it. And Tony Peluso was a typical rock guitarist and didn't read sheet music. So Richard wrote out a chord chart for him to follow. And he was instructed to play the first five bars of the melody and then improvise. 
Give it up to him, the professional he is. He only recorded the solo in two takes. Claps for Tony Peluso. <laughs> Goodbye to Love reached number seven in the Billboard Hot 100, and Tony accepted an offer to tour with the Carpenters full time. Some did not appreciate the combination of a soft ballad with this fuzz guitar solo, which is interesting because the Carpenters were now kind of turning a little bit more rock-centric, and this is the weirdest thing. Fans actually started sending hate mail to the Carpenters because they were like, how dare you even consider turning any bit contemporary rock? How dare you do this to us? <laughs> but on the flip side of that, they picked up new fans who appreciated the bridge between their softer pop ballads and rock. The hit single was featured on the Carpenters' fourth album called A Song For You, which was released on June 13, 1972, and subsequently their fifth album, Now and Then, released in 73. So no albums were released the following year, but in 1975, it saw the release of their next album, Horizons, then followed by their album called A Kind of Hush in 76. It was well known, unfortunately, by around this time that Richard had developed an addiction to quaaludes, it actually really started to get to a dire point. The Carpenters frequently canceled tours, and they stopped touring altogether after their September 4th, 1978 concert at the MGM in Las Vegas. Unfortunately, Karen was dealing with her own battles as well. Uh, these factors would result in their last two studio albums featuring Karen to not be as commercially successful. So there was one point where Richard totally fell during one of their concerts, um, and it got to a point where he had to get help. For his addiction but i'm not here to really hone in on richard necessarily i'm just saying that because it really shows that they were struggling the both of them were struggling immensely um and now we're gonna dive deep into karen and her complicated relationships with her friends her family her love life and everything else that she was going through. And by the way, just a trigger warning, if you're sensitive to talks about eating disorders, I can obviously understand if that's not something you really want to hear, then you can tap out right now. Um, so I'm just going to give that little warning right now. So Karen had a very complicated relationship with her parents. They had hoped that Richard's musical talents would be recognized and that he would enter the music business, but they were not prepared for Karen's success. Like they really did not give Karen the satisfaction of saying, good job, Karen, you're doing an awesome job. They really were focused on their son and giving him the attention. And they would kind of sideline Karen and they would like not commend her for the work that she was doing and the strides that she was making in her own right and in the music industry. So they would really sideline her a lot. In early interviews, Karen showed no interest in marriage or dating, believing that a relationship could not survive constant touring, adding that, as long as we're on the road, most of the time, I will never marry. But unfortunately, she really did want a marriage and she did want children. That was something that she always wanted and she always sought out. One could probably say that she was desperate, that she really, really wanted a family. And unfortunately, she was of the mindset that at the time, this is at the time here, we're talking about the 60s, 70s, you know, where women's roles were to the family and like in the kitchen. And she fully believed that that was the role she was kind of wanting to do. That when she got married, she would be solely focused on him and the kitchen and the family and the house. Like, 
That's what she wanted. She really imagined that life for herself. She actually later dated several notable men, including Tony Danza. <laughs> Tony Danza of the hit TV show, Who's the Boss? Love that show. Mark Harmon, who is famously known for playing in the show NCIS and others. Comedian Steve Martin and Alan Osmond of the Osmond Band? The Osmond Brothers Band? Basically, she dated a lot of notable people. After a whirlwind romance, she married real estate developer Thomas James Burris on August the 31st, 1980 in the Beverly Hills Hotel. She thought to herself she finally found a man that would take care of her, that would look after her, that she could play house with, that she could start a family and have children with, that this was her life now. She was like fulfilled and she was happy. A few days before the wedding, Karen actually taped a song specifically for the wedding and she played the tape recording for guests during the wedding ceremony, which is so sweet, but it's also so heartbreaking because of what happens next. Like, my God, she was just so in love and she wanted this man to love her and she just wanted a marriage and a love to last forever. That kind of fairy tale whirlwind romance. That's what she wanted. But unfortunately, she didn't get it. And this was her only marriage in her entire life. It's so unfortunate. There was problems. Karen desperately, desperately wanted to be a mother and have children. But Thomas did not want to reverse the vasectomy that he had gotten previously because Thomas was a divorcee, okay? He was divorced and he already had a marriage and an ex-wife and possibly children. From my understanding, I believe he did, but I didn't look into him much because he's a bastard, so. Um, but he had a vasectomy and he was like, uh-uh, I ain't reversing my vasectomy for you. No way. They could not come to a mutual understanding of this argument of having children and things only, things only got worse and I feel so bad for Karen. Thomas was a fuck who was living beyond his means. Can you tell that I'm angry? I'm very angry at Thomas. Thomas, you absolute loser. Thomas was living beyond his means, borrowing up to $50,000 at a time from Karen because Karen was the one, even though he was a real estate agent, Karen was the one that was bringing in the money. And Karen was like, yeah, you're my husband. Of course, I'll help you out with some money. And Thomas was mooching off of her and he would go beyond his means and he would borrow off of her to the point where reportedly she had only stocks and bonds left. Can you believe like this fuckery? Like I can't even with this Thomas guy. I can't. It got to a point where during a meeting with one of Karen's close friends for lunch, Karen's friend recounted an incident in which her and Karen met up one day and Karen looked to be distant um, emotionally and she was sitting not at their regular table and she was sitting in the dark wearing large sunglasses, unable to eat and crying. So make of that what you will. According to this friend, she said that the marriage was the straw that broke the camel's back. It was absolutely the worst thing that could have happened ever in her life. This poor girl, she just wanted a life. She just wanted a man to love her. She wanted a family. And this fucking guy comes in and she was already mentally unstable from what she was going through with her eating disorders and fame. I mean, this fucking guy comes in. Like, I just can't. Anyway. In September of 1981, Karen revised her will and left her home and its contents to Thomas, but left everything else to her brother and parents, including her fortune estimated at, at the time, five to $10 million. And in today's money, that would be equivalent to 15 
to $30 million. So Karen was really having a good go there with having her money. Not long after this, though, Karen would end up filing for divorce. Oh, and unfortunately for Karen, it does not stop there. She was having battles mentally, but most predominantly physical battles because she was struggling with her body image. She had body dysmorphia and she had an eating disorder. Karen's longstanding battle with her eating disorder started when she was in high school, so even as far back as that. Under a doctor's guidance, she began this diet called the Stillman diet, which was eating lean foods, kind of like chicken and protein, eight glasses of water a day, and avoiding fatty foods. She reduced her weight to 120 pounds, like so skinny, and stayed approximately at that weight until around 1973, when the carpenter's career reached its peak. And of course, that happens all the time. Someone has an underlying condition or mental illness and then fame exacerbates it and makes it worse. Absolutely. And unfortunately for her, this was the thing that killed her. So the thing to note is she had this eating disorder when she was younger, but it was kind of somewhat under control, if you will, up until this point, because a really damning shitty article that was written by a reporter for Billboard magazine at the time referenced Karen in the article as the chubby sister. And what do you think she did when she read this article? Well, I'll tell you. She hired a personal trainer who told her to change her diet. This new diet caused her to build muscle, which made her feel heavier instead of slimmer. So she fired this trainer and she began her own methods of losing weight, which is, of course, the worst thing you could possibly do because you are not a trained medical professional or nutritionist. You don't know what you're doing to your body. She was putting herself in a state of starvation all the time. You know, she began using her own exercise equipment and counting calories. And doing this, she lost about 20 pounds and wanted to lose another five. She was already very skinny. I mean, this is just absolutely insane. I feel so bad for her. By 1975, she weighed only 91 pounds. At live performances, fans were visibly shocked at her appearance. And many fans actually wrote directly to her via fan mail. And asked, like, Karen, are you okay? What's wrong? You look very emaciated. Are you okay? What's going on? She refused to say anything to anybody about what she was struggling with. She would not say a thing to her family, to her friends, to her fans. But people knew what was going on, of course. They could see what was happening. Richard later stated that he and his parents didn't know how to help Karen. And unfortunately, her parents weren't really that great to her anyway. And Richard was already deep in his quaalude addiction and he was enough help so he couldn't do anything even if he wanted to. So Karen was kind of like out in the middle of the ocean with no raft, with no life preserver, and she was struggling to breathe. And it's just so unfortunate that this had to happen to her. Thankfully, Richard actually confronted his addiction and he recovered and went to rehab by 1981, thankfully. So that's good. And by this time, Karen told Richard that there was a problem and that she actually needed help. So she was aware that she was very skinny and not healthy, and she had a problem and she needed help. And the first step to recovery is admitting that you have a problem. I can commend her for understanding that she had a massive problem and she needed help. So she was getting help for it. Karen ended up speaking with this woman named Cherry Boone, who was a singer for the all-girl trio called The Boons. Cherry had actually recovered from anorexia, and Karen contacted Cherry's doctor for help. And I think kind of like most people with this progressive disease and mental illness, you're hoping to find a, a quick fix, an all-in-one solution to her problem. 
And that's what she hoped for. She hoped that by seeing this doctor, she would find a, a, the one cure-all solution very quickly um, because of her singing obligations. But the doctor told her treatment could take from one to three years. If you're already semi-reluctant and you want things to happen quickly and you hear it's going to take one to three years, of course, you're not going to be pleased. So she then chose to be treated in New York City by a psychotherapist. By this point in time, she moved back to New York City and she stayed there for treatment. By late 1981, Karen started using thyroid replacement medication in order to increase her metabolism. And of course, when you increase your metabolism, anything that you eat, it'll get burned up by calories very quick. So she was abusing, if you want to say, abusing this medication to increase her metabolism. So anything she ate would be burned up quickly. And she used this alongside an increase in laxatives, which again, it, everything just runs right through her. She doesn't keep the weight on. Despite her doctor's best efforts to treat her, which included taking away any medications that Karen had misused, her condition continued to deteriorate. She, of course, lost more weight doing this whole thyroid replacement medication mixed with laxatives concoction that she was doing. Of course, I mean, that's absolutely horrific on your body. Karen would end up telling her doctor that she felt dizzy and that her heart was beating irregularly, which is the worst. That's the worst sign. Like when your heart starts doing stuff like that, that it's not supposed to, you know that you're in deep water and there's no going back from that. And unfortunately, that's, that would be the end of her. Like she was at the, at the point of no return. A year later in 82, she was admitted to Lenox Hill Hospital in New York, where she was placed on an IV that fed her nutrients. And luckily from this IV drip, she gained some weight, thankfully, in a relatively short time, as you do when you get placed on an IV like that in the hospital. That's what it's intended to do. She was emaciated and sick and dizzy and her body couldn't handle it. So going from very emaciated and sick to gaining this weight in a short period of time, can you imagine the strain, the physical strain that could put on her heart from that? And it was already doing strange things, you know, arrhythmia and stuff. I mean, that is, that is it right there. Like that is the end of Karen Carpenter right then and there. Her heart was the thing. So after she left the hospital, she flew from New York back to California in November of 1982, ever more determined to jumpstart her career and to get her life back on track because she thought, oh, cool, I'm finally gaining weight. Like, you know, I'm seeing a doctor in New York and treatment's going well in her own mind, you know. She was getting help for it, she thought. And so she's like, great, I can now finally move forward in my life. I can do what I always wanted to do and jumpstart my music career. She then was going to finalize her divorce and start a new album with The Carpenters, so she was trying to really kickstart her career and her life again. Unfortunately, though, on December 17th, 1982, she would give her last ever singing performance at a room in Buckley School in Sherman Oaks, California, singing Christmas carols for her godchildren and their classmates and other friends. I just, when I read that, my heart sank and I felt so sad. Her last ever performance was singing Christmas songs to her godchildren. It makes me so sad. The following year, on January 11th, she would then make her last public appearance at a gathering for the 25th Grammy Awards. Some people stated that she looked in high spirits, but then others said that she looked frail and worn out. So it's a mixture of both. She had also begun to write songs after returning to California, and she told Dion Warwick that she had a lot of living left to do. I, I mean, just this poor girl, this poor girl. On February 1st, 
1983, Karen saw Richard for the last time and discussed new plans for the Carpenters and resuming of touring for the band. She really wanted to get her life back together. She did not see this coming. Three days later, on the 4th, Karen was scheduled to sign final papers, marking her divorce and making it official. How ironic, though, that shortly after waking up that day, she was staying at her parents' house. Uh, she collapsed in her bedroom, and her parents called 911. She was rushed to the hospital. Paramedics found her heart beating once every 10 seconds. Once every 10 seconds, her heart was slowing down, like, I can't handle this. I can't handle this pressure. She died. She passed away at Downey Community Hospital that day at 9.51 a.m. Tragic. What happened to her? Karen's funeral was held four days later on February 8th at Downey United Methodist Church. Approximately 1,000 people attended her funeral. An autopsy was released in March, and it ruled out a drug overdose because I'm sure people were like, what happened to Karen? Was it a drug overdose? Like, no, of course not. It cited, of course, that her death was, forgive me, I'm probably going to mess this up, emetine cardiotoxicity. Oh, I think I said that right. Emetine cardiotoxicity due to or as a consequence of anorexia. It's, it's just a really sad, tragic story all around. Very, very sad. Um, she had a lovely voice. She seemed like a very sweet person. You know, you can tell that, she, that on stage in videos, you know, she seemed very uh, shy and skittish, but very sweet. And unfortunately, she was overcome by her mental illness and her eating disorder took over her entire life. And it's what killed her. And it obviously did not help that some people around her, like her parents, were applauding her for, quote unquote, losing her baby fat as a result of her literally killing herself slowly due to her eating, eating disorder. I mean, it's crazy to me. And she tried to get help. She tried so hard to get help, but it just, it was too much of a strain on her body. She was already so frail and thin. She had been anorexic for so long that when she got placed on that IV drip full of nutrients to her body that she desperately needed, her body needed it, but it was too much of a strain on her heart to deal with it. That's the thing that you really have to consider. That's the message behind this whole story of Karen Carpenter and her death, that if her death has taught you anything, it's just, I understand personally what body dysmorphia is like. I'm not going to go into it, but I understand. And it can be all consuming, just... I guess, I don't know, maybe it could be cliche of me to say this, but if you suffer from something like this, or you struggle with this, or you know somebody that struggles with this, I mean, just keep trying to love yourself and love them as much as you can. You will get better. <sighs> that, in a nutshell, is the story of the Carpenters and Karen's battles that she faced. But let's think of the positives. The Carpenters released some amazing singles that still to this day I think people know and respect. They're revered by their musical peers. She has a lovely, beautiful, amazing singing voice. Seriously, she, she is really good. That's where I'm going to end it on today's episode. I hope you guys have a lovely day, and I hope you learned something today that you hadn't learned about before. I will see you guys next Wednesday with another episode of On The Mix. Talk to you guys later. Bye, guys. Bye.